Welcome to Next Economy Now. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight the leaders who are taking a regenerative, bioregional, equitable, democratic, racially just, and whole systems approach to creating the new economy. I am privileged to be here today with my friend uh, and ally, Beth Ratner, the executive director of the Biomimicry Institute. Welcome, Beth. Thank you, Kevin. It really is a pleasure to have you. And for our listeners, I'm wondering if you could just start by sharing uh, your story and what brought you to the Biomimicry Institute, anything along the journey that you think might be interesting to share. Sure. Uh, now that I think about it, I think you might be part of my story. Um, you were my permaculture teacher. And so, and that actually is, is true that you are part of that story. When I first, when I first bought a house, I was really um, interested in painting it. <laughs> and I think I was like all first time homeowners and you just go crazy painting in an entire weekend. And I got so sick. And that was, I remember talking about it the next day to a colleague of mine, I was working at HP at the time, who said like, well, you need to learn about green building. That one sentence completely changed my life. I got the book Cradle to Cradle. I got the book Biomimicry. I learned about green building. I learned about permaculture all in, that, in the course of that year and frankly started to follow up on all of it. My, um, after leaving HP, I, I got to meet Bill McDonough and Michael Brungart literally at a conference right when I was leaving HP and got invited to help write the sequel to Cradle to Cradle, which is now known as The Upcycle. I was uh, definitely just one of many contributors. I played a super small role, but it was, a, it was a huge learning opportunity for me. But then I got tapped after that to become the executive director and the, um, to help kick off the, insti- the Cradle to Cradle Products Innovation Institute. Which you really co-founded that. I mean, that was... Yeah, it, was, you know, it didn't exist before. That's right. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was, we, we brought it into being because it was, it was actually before the days of circular economy. Uh, way back then, if you could remember, <laughs> uh, we um, we really found that there there was no single certification label that was looking at twenty six different endpoints of everything from endocrine you know toxicity to carcinogens and and how how would we really start to remake everything if we could and there had to be there had to be benchmarks. That was the whole principle behind it. And interestingly, it was, it was because of my work at Cradle to Cradle that I got interested in biomimicry. I had so many companies who would say, I'd love to be Cradle to Cradle Platinum, which was the highest level you could, you could be, but I can't get my, uh, my supplier to move. I can't get my manufacturer to create a, a less toxic adhesive, which you're now dinging me for, right? So how am I going to get better if I can't get this these, these participants um, to be part of the process. And then, we, and then through biomimicry, I realized that so much of what we depend upon in the chemical materials world could actually be replaced by structure, which is how nature designs. Nature doesn't use, it has adhesives, but it, it uses them in a very different way. Most of the things that we create could actually be accomplished structurally. So I, I'll, I'll leave it at there for now, but that was, that was my path. It, was, it very much started with a, very, a personal experience that became a, a, you know, a seeker kind of inquiry to learn as much as I could about the field happening to be in the right place at the right time. And then it just kind of has led me you know, in these different places to support both companies, but also to help educate the next generation and to start entrepreneurs. I really feel like entrepreneurship is so important. 
I'm definitely in accord with that. And it strike it occurs to me that our listeners at Next Economy now, I'm sure some do, but it's likely that many have maybe never heard of biomimicry. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. If you could maybe unpack that a little bit for us. And I think it was provocative and interesting to hear that nature can solve complex problems that we attack with chemistry through structure and pattern. Um, That's right. Just wondering yeah. if you could just describe for us, what is biomimicry? Sure. Well, so the, there's a bigger field called bio-inspired design. And there are, it's known by a lot of names, especially if you travel internationally. There's biomimetics, bionics even, which I, I thought was something different because I grew up. <laughs> Bionic man was a very different thing. But the, um, but the field of biomimicry is really the process of looking to nature to create more sustainable and, and hopefully more efficient and effective designs that, that we humans need. So the most uh, ready example that I, that I like to give is Velcro. The guy goes for a hike, a burr attaches to his dog's ear, he pulls it off, he looks at it under a microscope, he sees the little tiny hooks of a burr, and he thinks about how he could just do this all day long, attach, detach. Isn't there something that we could perhaps use that application for? That, um, you know, then you get a billion, you know, I think it's a half a billion dollar industry a year, it was Velcro, just from that one observation. But the application to rethinking everything, a very famous example is also the, um, the Shinkansen train in Japan, which reduced a sonic boom, went faster and, and operated at about 15% higher energy efficiency simply by changing the front nose of the, of the train from a flat-ended bullet shape to a kingfisher-shaped beak. By looking at that exact geometry, they were able to, to change all of the fluid dynamics in front of it. And so by looking at how nature solves problems or addresses uh, needs, uh, we can, and through forms and patterns and okay. structures and processes, uh, we can learn from that and take those processes to inform how we meet our needs. Is, That's exactly right. This is well, well said. Yeah. And so uh, what about the Institute? So here's, here's this field of biomimicry nested in the field of um, bio-inspired design. Um, what is happening? Uh, what, what does the inst- what's the Institute's role? Um, sure. Well, yeah, let me go back. So Janine Benyus is really the person who coined the term. Janine wrote the book called Biomimicry, Inspired by Nature, back in 1997. It was published. And shortly thereafter, uh, she and her uh, a partner, Dana Baumeister, created a private consultancy called, uh, at the time, Biomimicry Guild. And that was to specifically advise companies on how they could bring biomimetic design into their, into their work. Shortly thereafter that, a woman named Bryony Schwann started the institute with the idea that, wait a minute, this is such a powerful idea. How are we going to get kids who are learning traditional practices in design, engineering, architecture, et cetera, how are we going to get them to start pivoting to create what you would call the new economy? It has to start young. And so the institute was really founded with this idea of being an education nonprofit. Got it. And so the... um both for youth, young adults, and for early stage, maybe entrepreneurs, that there's a whole, you know, a whole range of people who we all do design at some level. And so uh, there's opportunities to influence how we think about design um, at many intersecting points. So what are some of the, I'm curious, maybe just walk us through some of the activities of the, the, um, the Institute now, what does it look like now? Sure. So 
uh, programmatically, we focus on education and entrepreneurship. Those are, that's the main focus. And it really comes down to giving people uh, what we, three things. It's, it comes down to access, meaning access to learning biomimicry. We want everybody everywhere to know that it's, that, that there are free resources for learning this. It is, it is a lens and, and you do have to learn it. So uh, it shouldn't be, there are great schools like Harvard Beast Institute um, in engineering that offers this or University of Akron, Ohio, and uh, MIT has a program in it now, but you, you shouldn't have to just be able to go to a, few, a handful of schools to get this education. Everybody should have it. So that's access. Practice is the idea that just like yoga, <laughs> you have to practice it. You're not going to be an instantly great biomimic. Just the first time you learn about it conceptually, you have to apply it. And that, for that, we have our design challenge. Oh, I'm sorry. And, and for access, we have Ask Nature. Asknature.org is a place where you can literally go in and type in a, a specific request like, how does nature adhere or filter any kind of verb you could think of, attach. And you're going to get a list of, of biological organisms that do just that. You're also going to get a list of, of companies that are doing biomimicry and see some of those inspired ideas. So that's access. And then for practice, we have a design challenge. We have it for youth. Uh, beginning with middle school and high school. It's called our Youth Design Challenge. And then we have a Biomimicry Global Design Challenge, which is open to university students and also to entrepreneurs. And then the entrepreneurs that graduate from that design challenge, graduate, it's not a formal program in that way, but just who, who complete that um, can apply to be part of our launch pad, okay. which is actually, and then the launch pad winners get the $100,000 Ray of Hope prize, which is... Um, uh, sponsored by the Racy Anderson Foundation, the founder of Interface Carpet. And so the global challenge, is: are there particular themes or is it just biomimicry um, in general? Or? That's a great, it's a great question. It used to be biomimicry. And when, I think when it first started, it was a student design challenge. And it was just, you know, what can you do in the field of biomimicry? And then it became thematic around water, transportation, um, and then food systems. We have focused, um, ever since the Rave Hope Prize became part of it, we're focused on climate and global warming solutions specifically. But the application could be for ag and land use, it could be for water, it could be for energy. So, but anything that gets us toward a collective solution, that's really what we want to do. There's, I mean, there are fascinating biomimicry products in the field of, of uh, medical sciences, specifically. Uh, the work of Jeff Karp comes to mind out of Harvard. What he's doing with like surgical sutures and stem cells is so fantastic in advance. I'd love to talk about that too, but that's um, super needed, but not, not the focus of our, of our challenge. So this is, so when, when listeners think about their work and their role as investors or entrepreneurs, or maybe they're MBA students, um, the field of biomimicry is something that can inform pretty much all of the uh, aspects of the economy and our lives, I guess. And what are some of the things that you're tracking now that are grabbing your attention that, that maybe people don't know about, or you think are stories that could really influence the trajectory of the next economy? I'm curious what's, what's on sure. your, what's on your radar. Well, um, and this you'll appreciate, I think, and, and, and hopefully resonate with is when you look at drawdown and you look at the, the top 80 categories and you look at like in the top 25, I think 15 are related to land use specifically. There are biomedic approaches to accelerating 
those exact land use solutions or looking at wind specifically of going from 4% to 22%, just roughly, right? In this time frame, there are technologies like whale power, which looks at how a humpback whale has tubercles at the end of its leading fin. And that, that design allows for 32, about 32% reduction in drag. So now all of a sudden, you have a more efficient wind turbine. John DeBerry out of uh, Caltech, he, uh, now he's at Stanford, but he created a, a project called Flow where he took vertical wind turbines and aggregated them in the same design as a school of fish. And by having that, that vortice that a fish, you know, a fish tail throws off so that the next fishy behind him can swim with less effort, just by grouping the wind turbines into that same pattern, he was able to get anywhere between 5 and 10x output. So it's, you can apply biomimicry to accelerating drawdown solutions, which is exactly what we need right now. You know, it's like we were talking about with the IPCC report, knowing that there is a time horizon that we have to act. So we need to find those technologies, which are, and it's so great to have a, a roadmap like drawdown, right? So now you know exactly where to focus. And I feel like biomimicry is a perfect complement for having us now. So let's improve on those. So another example would be for land use, uh, reforestation, such huge implications. But one of the reasons reforestation fails is because like, the people that go up to climb and, and plant those little trees back up there, it requires a lot of maintenance, both in terms of watering, nutrients, making sure that the leaf cutter ants don't get them if we're talking about Brazil specifically. So we have a team that created um, a, a remotely deployable solution, like literally you can drop it in. And it looks, if you can imagine an old slide, um, the slide cartridge projector, the rounded projector, it looks kind of like that, but it's made of biodegradable materials. The little sapling exists in the center of it. And the design is those chambers, instead of holding old slides, actually contains, is, is a way to catch water. It's a way to catch leaves so that now you have a natural resource for feeding that, that sapling. It's, you've, now you've got a system that mimics how nature would plant, which would be this sort of, um, this, uh, uh, what's it called, like the nurse plant concept from, from permaculture. So those are the kind of solutions that I get really excited about because what we're, so now that we know that, okay, we've got to go for reforestation or afforestation. So what are we going to do? Well, let's look at nature, how nature does it. And then there are specific teams within our design challenge that are going after those kind of solutions. It's really exciting. And it strikes me as one of the key leverage points when we look at the, the drawdown solutions, especially in the land use kind of category we find that whereas the practices and their potential impacts are well described in the academic or scientific literature, the uh, investment of resources into adoption of those practices doesn't, the returns I should say, don't necessarily conform well with the return expectations that are normal for capital and the mandates of capital or the liquidity or time frame, And so, it's not necessarily, for example, that we need to innovate on how to take carbon out of the atmosphere per se. I mean, there might be very interesting ways to do that as well, but trees photosynthesis are pretty darn effective and, and well-proven, but the innovation could be on how do we establish trees? That's right. Uh, how do we protect them? How do we, and, and that form, form factor type of innovation, I think it can, the opportunity of biomimicry and why, why I'm so jazzed on the, the existence of the Institute is that when I look around 
you know, I'm, I'm here in San Francisco and I look around Silicon Valley, I see a lot of engineering talent and I mean, genius. Um, For sure. But the, that genius is largely not in alignment with the kind of the problems of our time. Um, you know, maybe tangentially and not necessarily orthogonal to, but um, the Biomimicry Institute can maybe capture the attention of that genius and inform it. Um, so I'm just super excited that you're doing this work. That's exactly the hope, Kevin. I love the way you just said that because humans are problem solvers. Like we, we have these minds that just don't stop and we should focus them on something that could be, so here's, a, here's an interesting, just to finish the sentence, we should focus them on, on creating solutions that are already tested by nature, even though the design is of course different than how humans are going to be able to design for material science reasons, for um, you know, for all sorts of practical reasons. But what's interesting about biomimicry is, have you heard of the NASA technology readiness level indicator? So you can go from like zero to nine. If you're at zero, you're just having like, okay, I've got a problem. I've got to solve it. If you're at nine, you're ready to launch or you're ready to commercialize. Biomimicry gets you started at a three or a four because that design is already tested. It's a, tested in a different environment. But we know that this design works. And so just to give you an example, um, Sharklet is one of my, it's one of my favorite stories. And what you have with Sharklet is this idea of looking to the dermal denticles of a shark to repel bacteria. That pattern of a shark is, is really quite complicated. It's a series of, of troughs and ridges that, that prevent the bacteria from actually adhering to it so that a slow basking shark doesn't actually ever get like the, you know, the barnacles on it the way that a a whale might. If you apply that to a nanofilm, you've got an antibacterial surface that can be used in hospitals, that could be used um, in offices. Uh, Steel Case uses it on the, on the arms of their chairs, for instance. That, or again, if you think about hospitals specifically where superbugs are so rampant, now you've got something where you don't have to use a whole bunch of Clorox and ammonia and bleach, which is also has health implications, but you can actually use a structural answer to solve a very real social and, in this case, health problem. That's, a, that's what I'm talking about there is the process of looking to an existing design that we know works. Now we've got to be smart enough to create a similar analog in our own material, in our own material palette. But, that, but just knowing that you could start there, like, oh, this, this design will repel bacteria, like, that's a big deal. Really big deal. And I can't, I, I can't imagine, well... I, I don't want to be too cynical, but I want I want I want, I want I, we need to get the word out <laughs> biomimicry much further because everybody has a role to play uh, and the, the the exciting opportunity to align our technical genius with the axiomatic patterns of nature to um, create healthy non toxic environments even in the example you just provided the the cascading health implications to uh, furnishings that don't carry uh, viruses or bacteria and people getting sick and flu and, and just the cascading uh, savings, uh, financial and uh, health concerns for, for humanity, for families all over the world. I mean, just the, exactly. the huge implications. You know who asked us about that in particular was um, a, a prominent car company that's looking at autonomous vehicles because in the world of autonomous vehicles, you pretty much don't own your car. Like it's not just your family and your car anymore. So it's probably going to be more like an Uber 
situation where they get deployed all over. So now, now bacterial surfaces is a much bigger deal because you're sharing it with so many other people. Hmm. So I, all these, I hadn't even thought about that, but of course it's a, it's a very real implication. So looking, thinking about biomimicry and the long tail implications for humanity, if we do align our technology, get super efficient and create healthy environments, reduce the toxic load in our environment and in our social systems. What are some of the challenges to getting there or what are some of the opportunities that you're tracking um, to, you know, accomplish this task of making biomimicry normalized? That's just how design is. How do we get Yeah, I love that. That's, that's the goal is to, Janine says it, how do we make it a normal part of everyday inventing? So normalize is the right word. Part of it is, the reason that we have a design challenge at all is we want people to be able to practice it in their local ecosystem, their local biome. That's where the genius exists. And so the very first thing is we want people to know that your answers are probably right outside your window. That's a crazy empowering concept in and of itself that um, I think about a team, uh, one of the early teams um, out of a university out of Mexico that was really interested in water capture and because obviously water is going to be such a, it's, it follows that same hockey stick curve of uh, consumption rates as population grows. But this team looked at uh, um, a local bromeliad plant and a good example of a bromeliad plant, we all have them often in our, in our homes, but it looks like the top of a pineapple. So they were able to take old fishing poles so this is a great example. Like, so you know the structure of, a, of, a, of the top of a bromeliad works to capture water. They, it, it's proven. They see it every morning as the dew captures and, and the water collects inside the, inside the leaves. So they know that that structure works. So how are they going to apply it? Essentially, what they did is they took old fishing poles and constructed, imagine like an upside-down teepee. And that was that passive attachment of water and then the the droplets as they would as the differential in temperature allowed for condensation to happen it just traveled along those fishing poles and then would collect in the bottom of the basin now they have a very passive way to collect water locally ultimately solutions are going to have to be deployed locally and you're going to have to know what works in your specific environment for capturing water. i live right outside the redwood forest i know that my solution is probably something that looks a lot more like that as opposed to what's happening with the Hetch Hetchy Dam, right? So it's, it's, it's about being in tune with what our environment is. And that's like, if there's a Trojan horse to biomimicry, it's, it's that we, we don't have a conservation agenda overtly, but for sure it is part of it. And, we, and when you get outside and you start really studying that redwood tree, you're going to fall in love with that redwood tree. You're just going to, all of a sudden, you're going to appreciate just how, um, how astonishing the different mechanisms are. I mean, if um, in Hong Kong, when you try to pump water over 100 feet for any sort of high-rise building, I think it's like a 75% loss of energy that happens. There is no loss of energy for that redwood tree, and it's a dual uh, migration of water system. We can become so much more intelligent of designing our own built environments by looking at the tree. But like I said, in the same, in the same time, we're probably going to stop wanting to log redwood trees because we're going to be so in awe of them, or at least log them hopefully more mindfully. So that's the, I think that's the other, that's the part that's really important to me is that we reconnect to, and it's not just something as grand as a redwood tree. It could be something quite small, like a butterfly or a moth that, you know, people equally fall in love with. And then all of a sudden that becomes what they care about. I like that because some of the conservation ethic that I've observed and witnessed 
actually sometimes comes from a tragically from a place of guilt and shame. It's like mm. humans have destroyed so much and done so much hurt and harm and continue to do so. And there's this beautiful intention to say, stop, no, but kind of subversively underlying that is this feeling of guilt and yeah. it kind of somehow kind of carries through in the tenor of conservation, which I think turns some other people off. Um, and so this idea of reverence and learning, um, falling in love with the life around us um, and developing a conservation ethic rooted in um, just curiosity. And uh, it just, it's so much, I mean, maybe I'm projecting, but it seems so much more communicable, so much more uh, easy to it's share. contagious it's way contagious guilt is not contagious my mother has tried for a long time <laughs> but it's not contagious and you know what is is when you say come with me out to the forest and let me show you this astonishing creature and is it edward abbey who said we protect what we love so I, I think that that's a, again, it's not, it's, it's, we talk about biomimicry, and certainly with the Institute's programs, we're talking about new economy, next generation, regenerative, all of those important words that will go to how are we going to allow our species to survive, but hopefully so many others. But there's this other component, which is so alive for people, which is, especially kids. So we see this in, um, in middle school kids, they are looking for a reason to get outside and now all of a sudden their engineering class is letting them do it. Oh my God, this is their new favorite class. And we see adoption in girls specifically pursuing engineering related careers because the gateway has been biology. That's a very different place. So now all of a sudden we have more, uh, we have 50% of the people who participate in our design challenge are girls or women, which is astonishingly high for a science centered competition. And I think it's because that, um, it's that, it's that curiosity you talked about. It's that, that love of nature. I could easily imagine that being core to the reasoning. I think it's also really interesting and exciting to me. Something that I admire a lot is kind of the, the lineage you just described in the biomimicry or organizations, um, Janine and... Uh, uh, oh. Dana and Briny. Yeah, yeah. It's it's it's, it's uh, all women. <laughs> Feminine-led kind of effort, which I think is really exciting, and the cutting edge of innovation in science and design is all women. That's that's super exciting to me um, in terms of leadership. Well, thank you. It's uh, it, it's such an honor. Actually, it was. I don't think it was ever intentional, but it it certainly has has worked out that way. And. I'll, I'll tell you something else that too. That's part of it is um, there's always this natural because so much of our work is um, is academically based. So we, we do rely upon academic papers oftentimes as much as we rely on individual observation. Like, But your individual observation is probably going to be enhanced by, let's say, an academic paper. And so we really want the two to go hand in hand. You, you can't rely on just one versus the other typically. And, and so it is interesting how... Um, we have some academic critics sometimes who say like it's you can't mix love and academia <laughs> and, and so part of me suspects that there's a there's a gender bias there but i i don't know if that's true or not but I, but for sure the language of love is uncomfortable to some academics but i also know from just talking to so many people literally around the world that that is what motivates them well put and just it's, it, you just named something that I never really 
grappled with until now. So the, there's something about when I'm reading lots of scientific literature, it just is totally devoid of, of aesthetic. And, and it's just, and biomimicry is an incredible bridge where uh, some of the observational intention could be looking at something that's beautiful or eye-catching or interesting. That's right. And so it's this bridge between an analytical assessment and rigor and, and what's beautiful. And it's so much how we're driven, right? It's so much how we as humans are oriented toward beauty. And to deny that feels like you're going to be missing a really big part of the solution. Indeed. So I think it was, was it last year or the year before, maybe it's the last couple of years. Uh, I know you, I saw you on the main stage at the Bioneers conference, uh, talking about the prize for the, I think it's the global competition, not the youth. Uh, That's right. It's for the biomimicry global design challenge and the um, ray of hope prize. The Ray of Hope Prize. And so here we are coming into fall. Are, is there a current challenge that's going to be coming to a, a, a moment of uh, celebration, inclusion, and pride? There is. There is. So we will, we'll be on the Bioneer stage again. Uh, Jay Harmon, a fantastic biomimic in his own right, um, a guy who created PEX. He and his wife created PEX Scientific and really briefly about PEX. It's another exa- great example of how structure changes the solution. So Jay himself, Jay Harmon himself noticed as a young kid back when in the, in Australia where he's from that um, the spiral pattern that was ever present and everything from how kelp, the, like the giant kelp were formed to sunflowers, to seashells, et cetera. And that there was an important principle of fluid dynamics that was happening in with those spirals. He applied that to a fan and the Pax fan or the Lily impeller that can move that, that, that impeller can move. I think it's 7 million gallons of water on 300 watts of energy in the course of one hour. So it can de-stratify. So again, same thing, like you don't need bleach, you don't need chlorine because you're constantly, you're now using a motion to de-stratify and keep that water moving. That's an important, and then the same thing is now applied to fans that move air and, um, and circulation. And in fact, I reached out to Francesca, Jay's wife, when the fires were here because uh, I asked and I could, because so much of, a, of containing a fire is about the wind, right? The wind can devastate um, fire, fire efforts really quickly. With these fans, you can actually control and move tremendous amounts of wind with very low amounts of energy. So I asked her and she said, it's funny, you should ask because they were just uh, people from British Columbia were reaching out to them about that exact question. So they're phenomenal and they're going to be introducing the next round of, uh, of prize winners, this current cohort. And then we also, we, we always have essentially uh, a new cohort going. So uh, we just completed a boot camp in Montana for what will be next year's prize winner. So it's, 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 it's an ongoing process. And these really are international teams. We'll have teams from uh, Latin America, from Europe, from um, the Middle East, from the United States. We, um, I'm, pretty, I'm really proud of the reach that we have. Wonderful. I'm excited uh, to see the, the new cohort uh, that's reaching completion here and uh, just to track the ongoing effort. I'm curious for, there are some listeners who, you know, are new to biomimicry and they've kind of heard now about um, Ask Nature and the competitions and the Institute. Uh, what would you say, and some of them are, you know, some of them our listeners are philanthropists and uh, looking to support organizations, what's the best way for somebody to plug in and get involved? Sure. 
Well, there's a couple ways. I mean, our, our website is, uh, has a, a series of stories. In particular, it has the stories from the Youth Design Challenge. We have a great gallery. If you want to just smile, oh my gosh, go check out these kids. <laughs> One of our winning teams from the Youth Design Challenge, the middle school kids, they call it the superpower of the Saharan silver ant. <laughs> and I love that. Like whoever the teacher was in that class, she did a great job because all kids want to know the superpower of any given creature. And they created um, a really beautiful solar tile that looks exactly like the back of a Saharan silver ant and how it's reflective both for um, disseminating heat but also accurately um, collecting it. So we have those galleries where you can watch videos of those kids' teams, and I think that's the, the great way to get started. And it's also true for the entrepreneur teams and the more progressed. We, um, and so in terms of – and then, of course, there's always ways to, to donate through that, through that site because our goal is – our goal is to reach more kids like, and to reach more universities and to reach more entrepreneurs internationally. And so when we can uh, always think about that, thermo you know, those thermometers you pass <laughs> of any school fundraiser, I would love to show one that shows where we're trying to, um, how, how much penetration we have in terms of, of reaching STEM related courses, because with STEM and next generation science standards, there is a window of opportunity for biomimicry that has never existed before because next generation science standards looks at phenomena and nature isn't like innately a phenomena based learning technique. And also environmental education, as you know, in California, there's um, so much progress has been made by groups like 10 strands, for instance, here in the Bay area. If you look at just the population for California and Texas, and we could get biomimicry into these two States, we would have 25% of the kids in the United States. So that when we think about, and then in 10 years, when those are then when those kids have graduated, that's, that's a next generation who's empowered with a new set of tools that simply doesn't exist right now. And if we're talking about a 12 year time horizon for really correcting, well, we have to, we have to reach the companies that are currently in practice, but we also better create the next generation to be both around, uh, to be proficient around mitigation strategies, but also adaptation strategies. Like it or not, our world's changing, and nature is a really good mentor for showing adaptation strategies. And I feel like if new inventors had this lens in place, and that's really what we're trying to raise money for, is to get as many people as possible thinking this way, then I, I, I feel like it's a, it's a hopeful agenda. I, I don't think we have to despair because, again, the models exist. We've never been shown how to read those models. It's like a set of blueprints, but nobody knows how to read them. But now if we can, if we can change that, I, I honestly think that we'd be in good shape. What a wonderful space to put your energy into, just seeing what's possible on a day-to-day you know, -day or regular basis, um, even in the context of all the hurt in the world and the, you know, the legitimate fear and, and, and For sure. what's going on. There's just so much possibility. Yeah, actually, can I add to that? Yeah. I, um, we get the question a lot around social justice. It's such an important question. Um, but one of the things that I'm hopeful about also is that environmental justice, if done well, is social justice. If we can get rid of the concept of polluted water, if we get rid of the concept of polluted air and all the health, the, the cascade of health implications that you talked about before, if we can change the playing field of all of that through, through these, this, this better lens of, of innovating everything, redesigning everything, my hope is that at least it starts to level the playing field so that the have and have nots don't come from really terrible, 
different vantage points. And if that is a better place for a conversation when every kid has access to health, you know, food security and again, healthy food, water, and soil. So that I feel like, um, we can only all, all do so much, but for me, I've, I'm, ho- I'm hopeful that, that it does address both issues. And there's definitely relationships throughout, you know, adaptation and our harm reduction and, and our benefit to the biodiversity of the world and life. Um, those things can be tied together, environmental justice, social justice, um, environmental health, these things. There's a lot of intersectional, intersectionality in, in this work, I think. I'm curious, I, I don't want to project my own, I'm curious, if, here's a provocation that, that um, I'm just curious if it comes up in the biomimicry circles, again, with being so proximal to Silicon Valley and with so much enthusiasm around automation, robotics, AI, yeah. um, which seemingly is very similar. Um, the thing that I love about biomimicry is how it shows up in the applications. A lot of it seems to show up in augmentation tools making humans in our relationship to nature more more ease more healthy um uh more beneficial to life not necessarily replacing human energy or endeavor maybe and maybe some, <laughs> some automation but um and yet there's so many brilliant people really close by who are just focused on uh seems to be focused on kind of taking humans out of the material culture and, and the dealing with material and rather than augmenting, actually replacing or automating. Um, and, you know, AI, both specific AI and general AI are kind of the, I think some of the pinnacle expressions of removing our, our human brain faculty, I guess, <laughs> or at least, yeah, and I can't tell if maybe, and maybe there's a, there's probably a tremendous amount of nuance in there and I'm oversimplifying, but I'm curious if, if, in the biomimicry circles, people are talking about that or if it comes up. It does. It does. Um, I'm such a Luddite. I have a, I struggle with it, but I'll, I'll tell you that um, I, I found the silver line for me personally. I, I found the way to, to really appreciate AI, which is going back to this idea that we want people to get outside and do deep observation themselves. But at the same time, we know that number one, you don't always understand what you see. Um, someone who's been studying the redwood tree for 20, 30 years probably has a different appreciation and they can share something with you. So if you, so what we're using AI for, and we just completed a pilot with IBM um, and their Watson group around is imagine if you could type into ask nature, how does nature move water, pump water, for instance, and all of a sudden the redwood tree comes up, but you could have access to the multiple papers that have already been written about the redwood tree pumping water. So it takes our researchers about eight hours to construct a single strategy page, but it's something that could not yet, but soon could be done in minutes, if not seconds. It's, um, it's really sort of this advanced way of, of uh, searching and, and calling all of the right information to serve those specific, that specific taxonomy that we're using for, um, for engineering and design terms. So, in that regard, I feel it's like, like it's a good marriage because you still need a human to go out and study that tree for 30 years. It doesn't replace that person or the person who wrote the paper, but it now it gives the person who's inventing and doesn't have, frankly, a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they're not even a biologist. Maybe you're, a, maybe you're an engineer, a water engineer who just has never thought about the redwood tree. Right. Wouldn't it be great if they could have access to all of that information? So that's the intersection that I'm actually pretty excited about. It's a great example. Yeah. And- gives everybody a role to play 
Um, it does, right? Yeah, and supporting a more biomimetic humanity. Well, I'm curious if there's any other things that uh, you'd love listeners of Next Economy Now to know about the Institute, about biomimicry, about your work, um, or things that you're tracking, things that you're excited about. Just yeah, sure. I, I mean, for, uh, I think two things. One would be that there is, um, this really is a practice that is growing. I'm so, I'm so honored to be even a small part of it. I love that we're democratic, if you will, that we're, that we're providing this open access platform that is, that, that feels different to me. That feels important. That isn't necessarily being done everywhere. There is a team. And then that leads me so that, that concept of that I want every, if I could ask everyone to try something, I would love for you today as a listener to go outside and just sit in front of anything, whether it's that pine cone or it's, you know, in my case, it's a pine cone, but in your case, it could be a beetle and, and draw it, just draw. Because that process of drawing, especially for those of us who can't draw, like it's really frustrating, but it, you, it forces you to look deeply at anything. And you have to do it for 20 minutes. You can't just do it for five. You have to do it for 20 minutes. And I'm telling you something will happen. You'll for sure get frustrated and you for sure will want to stop doing it. But it, I would ask you to keep going because something will happen by the end of those 20 minutes, which is you will begin to fall in love with that thing and you will see something you've never seen before. And that opens up something inside of us that uh, I feel is so, is so desperately missing from our really fast-paced, cell phone-driven life. So that would be the first thing. The second thing is, you know, I'm really proud of this path of entrepreneurship. I feel, as you know so well from working with companies for many years, it's, it's always amazing to me how you bring, like big companies will call you in and they'll say, we want to be innovative and, and disruptive. And, and for sure they, they do. But invariably there is something that happens. I think it's fear driven, which says like, maybe we should just acquire another company that's already out there doing it. It seems to be that an acquisition strategy is a more expedient path, which is fine. But what that points to is we need more entrepreneurs, we need more disruptors, because the big companies probably can't get there fast enough. The, local, the smaller companies can be very agile, they can be very locale specific in terms of the solutions that they provide. And so I, I think the second thing if I would urge would be, um, you know, form teams, enter, if you can, enter our design challenge, be part of it as a mentor. If you can't, if you don't want to invent, come be part of it as a mentor. We need business mentors just as much as we need biology mentors. And, um, and that's true, uh, by the way, uh, across the board. And I feel like if we could, if we can spur that level of just massive amounts of innovation, that will be the path that will, um, that will be able to have not just resilience. Cause I like the word resilience, but I also feel like it's, uh, it's, it's very shielding. Like, ah, we're resilient to this outside invader. I like the word cooperation. I like the word collaboration we can be in this really deep collaboration with each other just by being able to, um, just by being able to have more, I guess, generative businesses that start at the local level. And all of a sudden we're going to find ourselves like in permaculture, we're going to find ourselves with almost these, these little local economies that, that are innately more cooperative, more cooperative, likely more equitable, yes, more participatory and creating benefit for life. Um, it's, it's very virtuous and I see it. I see it happening. And Yay. This is a great call to action. Both, both those, 
provocations are very beautiful and important and timely. Well, Beth, I'm super grateful for you taking time to share, and I, I'm sure we could continue talking. <laughs> maybe, maybe we can find another time to revisit some of the great examples that are coming out through the design competitions and all the great work you're doing. I loved exploring, revisiting the thread of your story. Very, you're on that cutting edge of hope, um, which I, I love um, that you're out there doing that work. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. Well, you are the same, Kevin, for me. So I, I, I feel like you are such a mentor for me, and I really deeply appreciate this time together and, and what you're doing in the movement. Wonderful. Well, I look forward to staying in touch, and I'll see you, I'll see you at Bioneers. See you at Bioneers. That concludes this episode of Next Economy Now, and now on to our mini interview with Doug Bistry, CEO of Clearinghouse CDFI. Okay, welcome, Doug, to this interview series, the Next Economy Now podcast, and you know, for listeners, I think one of the reasons I'm excited about Clearinghouse CDFI is that you're a lot different than other financial institutions. For Clearinghouse in particular, one of the most interesting things to me is that you're one of the only CDFIs or banks that I know that specifically serves um, sovereign nations. Can you speak a little bit about you know, why you've chose to do, to do loans in Indian country and a little bit of the backstory about that? Yeah, well, it's kind of a really interesting story. I uh, attended a uh, a board meeting on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation a number of years ago. And just by happenstance, there happened to be a, a very small business that was just getting started there, Native American Natural Foods. They're the, the makers of the Tonka Bar, which is a, a buffalo and cranberry uh, health food bar. It's the healthiest health bar uh, on the market, in my opinion. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to meet them on the reservation and uh, sample their product. And I simply just thought it was a, a fantastic product. I love the idea. I actually love the taste of it and, and the fact that it's healthy. So, you know, I simply said, hey, good luck. I think I ch- exchanged cards with the, the principals at the time and just kind of forgot about it. And probably six months to a year later, I got a call from uh, uh, Mark Tilson, who is one of the principals of Native American Natural Foods. And he basically said, hey, Doug, you know, I met you when you were out here and you were kind enough to, you know, give us some words of encouragement. And I know you're a CDFI and and I'm looking for a CDFI in the Midwest that can help us with a loan uh, because uh, we, uh, you know, are uh, getting a lot of orders and we can't fill them and our business is growing and it's all all good. And I said, you know, Mark, uh, sure. I said, I know a lot of CDFIs in the Midwest. I know a lot of folks out there. Let me, let me get on the phone. I'll find you someone. And as uh, uh, sometime what happens in life, uh, you know, I, I talked to a lot of people and I kind of had a lot of people say, you know, let me think about it or we don't, we're not doing that or let me get back to you. Or, this sounds really complicated. And bottom line is ultimately uh, I couldn't find anyone to step up and, and make the loan. And so I, uh, at the time, my service area was just in California, but I simply went to my board and I said, look, you know, we're a CDFI. This is a a small business that really needs our help. They have uh, uh, tremendous obstacles to obtaining credit and even running a business. And uh, if you've ever been to Pine Ridge, um, you understand some of the other uh, difficulties in in the environment there. Um, And so I simply said to my board, you know, we just need to make this loan. I know it's outside of our area. I know it's not the type of deal we do. And fortunately, uh, I was able to convince my board to not only make a loan, but we made an equity investment. And then I started to think about that experience, and I started talking to some of the other leaders in uh, Indian country and, and basically found out that 
there was just a tremendous uh, problem with um, Native American communities, uh, both on and off reservation, uh, getting uh, capital, uh, having access to credit. And part of it is, is an institutional systematic problem we have with the reservation system. But I, I, I basically said, you know, we're, we're a CDFI. We need, to, we need to run to the places that need us the most. And so at that point, I went to my board and I said, you know, I know we did this one thing and it was out of our service area, but I, I think we need to, you know, be a, a bold and stand up and say that we're going to take on this challenge. And that's kind of what's happened. You know, I'm proud to say now we've uh, deployed, I believe, over $45 million, um, through direct lending and also through new markets tax credits in Indian country. And, and I know we're one of the larger lenders in Indian country. And I still feel like we really haven't done enough. The, the need is so great. And with uh, so many uh, tribes and so many communities really suffering, and, I, and I'm talking about terrible uh, social issues uh, on the reservations, I just feel like as a CDFI, it was just the right thing to do. And it was important for us to do. And, and it's uh, some of the loans that I'm the most proud of in our portfolio. And where can folks learn more about Clearinghouse and, you know, say if there's any investors who are interested, what's the best way for them to get in contact? We have a great website that has a ton of information, including our financials. Um, it is www.ccdfi.com. Again, that's ccdfi.com. And uh, a lot of information there. There's contact numbers. Um, I'd be happy to. Uh, to talk to anybody that uh, is serious about uh, investing or working with us. And also, you know, we're looking for projects to lend, um, you know, good projects. And so in, in our service areas, uh, California, Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico, and all of Indian country throughout the United States. So if anyone is aware of an unmet credit need that has a good community impact, or, you know, uh, often our loans are made to entrepreneurs, uh, people of color, or, or members of groups that have been disenfranchised. Next Economy Now is a production of Lyft Economy. To listen to all of our episodes, go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's L-I-F-T economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter, at lifteconomy.com slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.